Good morning, church. If you want to grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. Uh, as Trav's mentioned, we are working our way through uh, an amazing book. I think it's fair to say Revelation is unlike any other book in the Bible. And uh, we've been looking at these extraordinary um, words that the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, has been saying to these seven churches. And uh, in an area of, uh, as we've heard of modern-day Turkey now, these seven churches have been hearing from the, from the risen Lord. And today we, we come to verse 18 of chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at a church called Thyatira. Thyatira. And um, even as we as a church have a passion to see many churches established in Tulare and in, in Sacramento and in many, many other places, we can see this wonderful, huge relevance to us today. As we look at this book, Jesus is talking to this group of churches who are geographically together, and he's giving individual instructions. So this is a hugely relevant word to us as a church. We are passionate, yes, about Visalia. Amen? Amen. But also about Tulare. Amen? Amen. And about all the wonderful cities of this great valley. So, so I want us to have ears to hear today, not just as a historic document, but as a hugely relevant now word to us here today. And uh, I, I don't know how much you know about Thyatira. Maybe uh, some of you know a lot about Thyatira. But Thyatira um, was actually the smallest and the least significant of all the cities that Jesus spoke to. But what's fascinating is he writes the longest letter of any of the seven churches to the apparently most insignificant church. So, I mean, there's a whole sermon in there, isn't there, in terms of the least shall be first, and the kingdom is, uh, 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 that God brings to us is not how we expect. So even today, you might feel small, insignificant, for whatever reason. Uh, immediately, we come into this glorious reversal in the way that God works, that He often, He sees something in small and insignificant people and places of tremendous worth. He gives them 11 glorious verses here, which is the longest of any of the letters written to them. And if you want a kind of bit of a snapshot of this church before we jump into the detail, the simplest way of understanding it is that it's a church that is strong on love, compassion, care, but it seems to be weak on holiness. You might use the phrase, it's a bit of a liberal church, if you know what I mean by that. It's a bit of a liberal church is the one we're looking at today. A little while earlier, we looked at the church in Ephesus, and commentators point out there's this fascinating contrast between these two churches. Ephesus is almost the opposite. It's strong on not tolerating bad people. No, it's sort of holy in that somewhat obvious sense. But it's weak on its first love. So immediately we see here our Father who knows his children individually. Isn't it wonderful? You know, he knows you all individually. He doesn't just give us a big sort of bland word today. The Holy Spirit today, He's going to be at work in individual hearts, giving individual conviction and revelation. It's glorious. And we see this here. He gives a different word to the church in Ephesus, so He does this church in Thyatira. A church that in many ways was based in a city that wasn't significant. 
Fascinatingly, apparently, this city, um, as we're going to see, was, was a commercial place, but it wasn't politically significant. It wasn't really historically significant. In fact, one of the most interesting things about it was that it was kind of in the way, if you're talking about battle lines, it was in the way of an important city called Pergamum, which we heard about. And it was almost designed so that it would slow down. If, it was, if Pergamon was going to be attacked, this place was just seen as the place that slowed it down. Oh, of course it will get destroyed. We can rebuild Thyatira. But it will slow down things as it gets to the important place. So you see, imagine what it's like living in a place where that's kind of what you're known as. Small, insignificant. Oh yeah, Thyatira, you're like on the way to the important cities. Ring any bells? You know, that's, that's the town we're looking at today, okay? That, how, yeah, oh, you get, yeah, you see? It's hugely relevant to us today, this place of Thyatira. But I love it because we're going to see this wonderful blend um, of actual celebration as well as challenge. You know, in these 11 verses, seven, say seven, seven are pure celebration. There are four of challenge. But if you're anything like me, I tend to so focus on the four. When I hear any kind of challenge, I just ignore any positive stuff that's been said. And actually, you do do the Bible a disservice if you do that today. Do be challenged today. They will be challenged. But I want us to understand and have some integrity when we look at the text. What is the balance of the whole letter? It doesn't just scream angrily at us. There's a piercing challenge, but let's let the whole feel of the letter go to work today. And it's actually a kind of, I suppose, a... Uh, a a challenge sandwich, you know? There's lots of love on either side and those juicy bits of bread, but there is some challenge in the middle. So let's read today then. And as I say, there are church which we might call liberal. I guess one way of putting it is that they were, and my title today is that they were currently controlled and compromising. They were compromising, but they're going to be called to be conquerors. So there's a present-day assessment of them. The big challenge is that they're compromising. But Jesus wants to call them into being a people who don't stay there. So the issue really is how do you live as a Christian and engage with the world without becoming like the world? That's the big idea. How do you do that? How do you actually be a businessman or a businesswoman or an artist or a musician or a mum at the school gates or someone who's in education? How do you actually do normal life in Visalia, loving Jesus, being involved in the world, but not ultimately compromising to the extent that then Jesus has to come and say the words that he does? I would say in my life, I find this very, very helpful, terrifying, challenging, encouraging altogether. If you feel like, man, I I know at times I'm susceptible to, 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 to compromise in the name of love, Please, listen up, lean in. These words will change our lives. So verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write. So this is the aged John, as we've been reminded, having an extraordinary vision in the latter days of his life on the island of Patmos. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. 
So I'm just going to look at three things today. We're just going to walk through the scripture and make some comments. We're going to see celebration, then some challenge, and then some celebration. So I have three points, which is celebration, challenge, celebration. And this first point, this first celebration we see here, I want us to just to drink in. Jesus, before he gets to the tough words, as the kind, loving God that we Christians love to worship, he starts with these amazing words of celebration. Look what he does here. In verse 18, he's about to encourage them in verse 19. But do you see what he does? Before he says the nice stuff, he gives, um, gives them and gives us this vivid description of who it is that is about to say the nice things. He, he says, this is who I am. These are the words of, that's him talking, the Son of God. It's the only time in the book of Revelation the term Son of God is used. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand what he's getting at. It's this term of huge, majestic, authoritative beauty and power. The Son of God is about to speak to you, is what he's saying. And then he adds in, whose eyes are like blazing fire. There was a very uh, well-known elder in the church in England who was South African called Gustav, who was a good friend of mine, but he had blazing blue eyes. And whenever he saw me as a single man, he'd be like, are you walking in purity, Tom? And I'd be like, yes, Gustav, yes. <laughs> if you ever meet Gustav, you'll see what I, say, you, you'll see what I, I mean. He had these blazing Amazing eyes that looked at me, and I think, well, if I was terrified by Gustav, Jesus, with these blazing eyes of fire, and, and fire here talks about purity, it talks about accuracy, he's saying, I see you accurately, Travis, I see you accurately, Zaphire. these eyes are not like the imperfect eyes of this world, these eyes are blazing eyes, and my feet are like burnished bronze, which... Which, uh, which speaks of power, authority, stability, might. I'm about to say something really encouraging to you. So you can imagine the church in Thyatira are like, wowzers, we're pleased we went to church this week. Jesus, with blazing eyes and amazing feet, is about to speak to us. And this is what he says, I know your deeds. I know them. I know them. I see you today. Listen, you who are in very difficult marriages... And nobody sees your deeds, your love, your faith, your perseverance. Nobody sees it. Jesus sees it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He really sees it. And he wants you to know that this is the one. Look at that description. This is the one who says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service. Or you could translate it, your charity. You actually are involved with the poor. You help the needy, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. He, he just gives them this incredible encouragement to start off with. Imagine having this written to you. I mean, each one of those characteristics he gives is amazing. You are doing so well, Thyatira. He's saying to them, well done for your faith and, and your love and your perseverance. And that this time now, you are more progressed than you were this time last year. You are true disciples. Are you a true disciple? Is he saying that over you today? Is he saying, do you know what? If I was to ask your husband, your wife, your best friend, is she growing? For these guys, Jesus was saying, I'm looking you in the eyes and I'm saying, you're changing. You are indeed 
being transferred from one degree of glory to another. So just let that sink in just for a moment. I know, I know it's warm. It's really warm where these letters were written, I think. Patmos sounds pretty hot to me. Thyatira, it's got to be hot, surely. And yet, and Jesus' eyes were hot, so it's just, it's okay to be hot. What he was saying here is so vital in our lives because most of us want our deeds to be known by pretty much anyone else, right? As long as they see my deeds. Seriously, we live our lives. As long as, as, long as those people who are following me on Instagram or Facebook see my deeds. As long as someone in church praises me for my deeds. And what happens is our lives are actually constantly in the grip of wanting other people's praise. And Jesus wants to cut through here saying, no, 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 I want you to live for my praise. When I turned 40 in November, I had this sense that turning 40 was going to be a bit of a mixed deal. And sure enough, on the day I turned 40, Doug Vanderhoek died and went to glory. And um, it says in the Bible that it's, it's more blessed to be in the house of mourning than it is to be in the house of festival and, and feasting. And it was strange. I knew there was a gift. He was 59 and I was turning 40. And I just had this sense of, wow, you know, Doug was super fit, always out on his bike. He was the epitome of physical health, it seemed. And yet the Lord took him to glory at 59. And I, I just remember God saying, learn, Tom. You may have 19 years left. You're no longer really a young man. You have plenty of gray hair. You can't claim that anymore, son. You know, and it wasn't a depressing thing. It was a strangely clean thing. It was like, yes, I want to live for the audience of one. You know, when you move from one country to the other and you sell your house and you have the, the house sale money from that and you come to the States and you're, you're trying to work out, we can't actually buy a house yet because we can't get a mortgage because we can't get any credit. And then you're just like, what do I do with my money and where do I put it to invest it? And, and we found ourselves thinking, it's quite strange. It's quite disorientating. And, and you have this question of, where do, I, where do I invest? Where is my heart and my money and my life? Where is it invested? Where is really stable? Is it in those investments here or in the UK? Or is it, and, and this sense of God saying, do you know what, Tom? You don't, there's nowhere safe, ultimately. You, do you know what I'm saying? Where you put your heart's investments or your life investments or your financial investments. And in this season, since turning 40, the Lord's been saying, every day I'm watching you. I'm watching. You can either be rich towards the world or you can be rich towards me. This, I am the sure place to invest, is what God says. Seriously, you can get to the end of your life with all the money in the world and everything uh, in a human sense that could look like you've been blessed. But if you've been rich towards yourself and not rich towards God, if you've lived without realizing he sees our deeds, and he means that in a good way, as in, I see it, live for me, Larry, live for me, Zaphir, live for me then we can be those who ultimately are just very foolish. But we have the glorious chance to be so wise. To be like these guys who say, we're this insignificant place. Nobody knows where we are. We're just on the way to somewhere else. And yet the king of glory 
writes us the longest letter with blazing eyes. He says, I know your deeds and you're investing every day, not primarily at a human level, but everything you do at a human level is somehow worship to me. It's for my pleasure. It's for my delight. You're investing as a mum, not ultimately into your children, but because they're God's children and you want to pour into them so that he might be pleased. Do you understand? As a teacher and you have your 30 kids, you're not just teaching the children. You're saying, this is God's creation. And this is all for you, Lord. And so everything we do, he's saying here, point one is, I want it to be so that you live for an audience of one. And he was saying, well done. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You're living for me. Hallelujah. You're living for me. But then he comes on to a second element of the letter, which we must look at. Verse 20. Nevertheless. Always slightly terrifying when... Jesus says something nice, and then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, the eating of food, sacrifice to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So what seems to be happening here is there's a lady who most likely isn't literally called Jezebel. I'll explain in a moment why that nickname is given to her um, through the inspiration of the Spirit by John. But it seems likely that in this great church, which is living ultimately for a God who knows all of our deeds, point one, there is this significant challenge. And what's haunting is that this single woman seems to be, I don't mean single as in not married, I mean this one person, seems to be almost single-handedly causing this very significant issue in the church. Just bear that in mind. One person in a body can infect the entire body is what he's saying. And what seems to be happening here, what, what, what is he going on about when he says, you know, by her, her teachings, she's leading people into sexual immorality and food, eating to idols. What the commentators say is most likely happening is this city of Thyatira, what it did have going for it was that it was a trade center. Economically, there was lots going on. Lots of businessmen, lots of businesswomen. So Lydia that we hear about in, in, the, in the, uh, the birth of the Philippi church was from here. She was a, a merchant, a business lady who dealt with, with wool. And this place was a real hub of entrepreneurs. And to be part of the business world, you had to be part of a guild, a business guild, trade guilds. And so you were part of these clubs and if you wanted to be a business person in this place, which is what most people did, you had to be part of a guild. You had to be part of a club. But what was um, significant was that these guilds frequently met together and had meals. Big wow, you say. Well, the meals would typically, typically start with everyone together pouring out their wine into their cup and then together pouring it out onto the ground. It's called a libation. It was a sacrifice to the local gods. Thank you, local gods, for our business going well. We thank you. And everyone would do it together. And then they would tuck into their meal. Oh, and the meat just previously 
had been ritually sacrificed and much of it had been given, again, to the local gods. And as you ate, yes, at one level it was just a meal, but at another level there was this agreement together that we're thanking the local gods for what they've done. And then often by the end of the evening, frankly, as the wine flowed and business was discussed and things happened, well, there tended to be a little bit of immorality. A little bit of inappropriate sexual activity would happen and mark out these times. But it was just so common, so normal. And what it seems that the teaching was through this woman Jezebel was basically, called Jezebel, was that this teaching was that you can compromise as a Christian. Because you know what? Ultimately, Christian life is about your spiritual being, not your physical. What you do with your body doesn't really matter that much. It's about your inner life, your private life. You can be publicly, in many ways, not that great, but Christianity is about your private inner life. And even if you act in a way that's physically not perfect, hey, we know the gospel is a a gospel of grace, right? And this Greek dualism, this idea that Christianity is all about just your spiritual inner life, and physically, well, our bodies aren't that important, right? Was absolutely the opposite of the Jewish mindset. But you know what? Isn't it true to say a form of that is so absolutely common here today? And so the lie would be, you know, that you can, if you're going to be a businessman, you can't just, you know, you can't just withdraw. You have to be involved. If you're going to be an actor or going to be a musician or you're going to be involved in your community, you have to be someone who who gets involved with the ways of the community around us. And what Jesus says here is that this compromising was absolutely and completely, utterly not okay. And he was going to judge her for leading them into sexual immorality. And probably also behind John's writing, it wasn't just literal sexual immorality. The Bible often talks about immorality, not just in terms of literally having sexual intercourse in an appropriate outside of marriage, but that it's a metaphor for our hearts going astray spiritually. He often calls his people, you're unfaithful. And what he means is, is that your hearts are lusting after other gods, the gods around us. And the heart, actually, that is even deeper than this, this uh, compromising spirit, the real issue here was the issue of control. Was the issue of control. Was that beneath this lie that it's okay to compromise, was this woman, it seems, was actually being influenced by what, commentators call a Jezebelic spirit that was apparently earlier spotted in the Bible in 1 Kings 18 and 19. Lots of you are nodding. The first Jezebel we hear hear about is a very similar character. And one person, this lady in the Old Testament, also has a devastating effect. In 1 Kings 18 and 19, she brings her love of of false gods into her marriage with King Ahab. King Ahab is passive and floppy like this church here. They just, he's just flattered by her and controlled by her. And bit by bit by bit, they compromise. And by the time of 1 Kings 18, 10 million people in the whole of Israel have now gone like this and are compromising their true love of Yahweh with actually a love of other gods. It's so subtle. And the reason that Jesus calls her Jezebel, 
this woman who probably wasn't called Jezebel, is because he's saying it's the same spirit behind these two people in operations. Separated by hundreds of years, the same spirit is behind them. It's the same deal. Yes, at one level it's about compromise, but the reason that there's an encouragement through these women, through these people, it's not just about women, by the way, as we'll often see in life, it's, it's nothing to do with gender really, There's an encouragement for people to compromise because when that happens, what happens is the people who are compromising, their relationship with God weakens and therefore their relationship with the one spreading the lie strengthens. Do you see that? As they encourage either Jezebel in the Old Testament or this Jezebel, the people to just compromise a little bit. What happens is in that moment, the people who are believing that lie do start to just have their relationship with God weakened a little bit. And their relationship with the liar, with the Jezebel, strengthened. And so what happens in that Jezebelic person is there's this bit by bit by bit control. I'm controlling you. I'm leading you into a place of compromise, of helping you break your active, strong relationship with God. And as you do that, you become more and more vulnerable to be someone who's actually effectively possessed by me. You see it with Jezebel in the Old Testament. An amazing guy called um, Elijah, who the Holy Spirit spots what's happening through this demonic spirit, through Jezebel, and the Holy Spirit raises up Elijah to confront her and all of her false prophets. It's an amazing story. But what happens is when she discovers this has happened, she's furious and she sends him a message. And this message has an incredible impact on this bold man. So what I'm trying to get at today is I'm trying to paint the picture at the physical level, what was happening in that church. But this is the real heart of the message, is that actually behind this woman, this person who was, in, who was getting them to compromise so that she would actually have greater and greater control over them as they weaken their relationship with God through compromise and sin. Really what was going on was that she herself was being influenced by a spirit in the unseen realm. To put it this way, what I'm saying is is that as Christians, one of the basic points of our belief is that yes, we can see the world with our eyes, But the Bible tells us that we live in a spiritual world as well as a physical world. And if you don't really believe that, if you think the stories of the Bible are explainable ultimately through behavior or through psychology or through logic, and you don't understand that actually the Bible is talking about this great clash between two kingdoms that we can't see with our eyes but are utterly real and it's still happening, then you are incredibly vulnerable is that even for those of us who are filled with the Holy Spirit, is that, for example, in Ephesians 6, it says, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against unseen principalities, powers, that's one word, powers, dark forces that were controlling this woman are real. And Paul calls them powers. He then says they are authorities. He says they 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 are principalities over this dark world. Spiritual forces of evil is what he says. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of my life, I don't tend to actually think like this. The technical term is rationalism, where you just think of everything as rationally explainable. Anyone here would say, yeah, I know what you mean, Tom. I don't tend to think an awful lot about dark spirits or Jezebelic spirits or the unseen realm as influencing my life. Anyone here would say, yeah, that's not something I tend to think about a lot. 
Oh, you will do. Great. Well, in which case, then I can stop, and I'm the only one. But what I'm trying to say is, is that sometimes it offends our intellect. When we think of ourselves, yes, as beings that think and have rational brains, but that also we are spiritual beings that can be influenced by the dark, evil forces and powers that the world that we live in, that ultimately had their source in Satan himself. It's what was happening with Jezebel in the Old Testament. It was what was happening in this church here today. And that's why Jesus is so furious about it. At one level, the behavior to spot was compromise. So let me ask you this question. Are you being tempted to compromise in your life? Mine not being sexual immorality, although there's a very real chance it is, because porn addiction is probably the highest it's ever been in the history of the world. California, one of the epicenters. Are you being tempted to compromise? Are you being tempted to compromise in your language? Just recently I was in a, in a situation where someone just said something negative about someone else and I found myself instinctively wanting to agree, just to compromise fractionally. And as I was pr- praying and thinking about this, I was thinking, no, 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 that's, that's how it begins. Because what happens is, as I agree with that person in their negative assessment of someone else, is ultimately my relationship with Jesus is damaged. It offends him. And in the same way, my intimacy with that person is increased. It's the way gossips often work. They will draw you in, and what's happening is you are actually being drawn in to agree with them about the negative things around here. And what's happening is, bit by bit, your vertical relationship with God is just getting weaker, and your strange, unconscious allegiance with that person is getting stronger. It's the way that people often control. Now listen, some of you are thinking, Tom, mate, I'm a bearded man from California. I ain't no Jezebel. You know, look at my muscles. All this talk about Jezebel, this. How is this relevant to my life? The the, the issue here is not about the name Jezebel. The issue here is a spirit of control. That's what I'm appealing for us to actually grapple with here. This woman who called herself a prophetess, she loved the titles. Doesn't say she was a prophetess, she called herself that. She loved the title, she loved control, and she was appealing to these people who were trying to work out, how do I do business? Well, she says it's okay, and we all agree, and like sheep, people believe corporate shared norms very quickly, don't we? Oh, that's what we do here. We drink this much rather than this much. We wear clothes that are like this rather than this. Oh, we don't really help in that way because that's what we all do, right? Yeah, we just sort of forget that bit of the Bible. And, and in the same way, this church was being compromised and controlled, not even ultimately by her, but by someone behind her. This is real stuff. Now, I want to say this, is that you live in a spiritual world, whether you like it or not. And you have a choice today, which is to ignore vast amounts of the Bible and think I'm being over the top and a bit dramatic on this hot, sweaty day. But I want to say to you is that we need to be those who hear the warning, don't we? Listen, I, if, you can, if you can ever put your hand up when I say, are you prone to being a control freak? Anyone here say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm prone to that. Okay, 80% of the hands go up. We use funny terms like control freak. Actually, the, the, the lust to be in control is what opens us up to those dark voices that say you can be in control. 
It's normally through either flattery, that's how it first starts out, people who are operating in the spirit, who want to possess people and own you. You're my friend. <laughs> Often through flattery starts. And then if that person starts to sort of not be quite so controlled, then it, it can be operating in through fear. Switch. And often it will start with passive aggression. Fear, as in, I will with, with, withdraw my affection for you. And then the third, last ditch thing is active aggression. I've seen that so many times in churches. People who flatter you. It's not real words of love. There's something going on there. They actually want you to somehow kind of be, be theirs. And then if you ever demonstrate a different opinion or something that wouldn't, they wouldn't agree with, there'll just be a quietness. And they know what they're doing. The enemy knows what he's doing when he gets people to do that. And then the third last ditch attempt is outright opposition. And here's the scary thing. It can be extreme. There are some people in this room and you're probably more shaped by this than you realize. If you have any orphan thinking in your heart and you are not completely at peace that God is my father, that he is in control, that I am his possession, the natural counterfeit lie is then to try and think, if you feel like an orphan, you feel like you have to control everything. And you then start to try and be the owner of others. It's what happens, isn't it? If you don't feel I am drenched in security, that he is my dad and he's in control, orphan thinking leads us very quickly to become vulnerable to the enemy who says, yeah, you do need to be in control. And if you control people, that's your surefire way of doing it. And here's, the, here's my real confession is, I know I've done it. I know there's been strongholds in my mind, so subtle. In fact, I confessed it a few months ago to you. I said I tended to put people either in the category of superior. And for those people, I needed them to think highly of me. Or inferior. And for those people, I wouldn't need them to think highly of me. I tended to use them. I would use them to somehow make me look good before those people who I thought were superior. That was the tape playing in my brain. And it is not good. It comes from somewhere other than God. It's me using people or needing people. And even the people I'm needing, I'm still using. So I want to free you here today if you feel like, wow. I mean, with your kids. You can start to operate with your kids in this way. Often when marriages break down and you feel like things are out of your control, you can swap a healthy love for God's children that you're stewarding and they become yours. And, and, you, and we can not even realize we're doing it. We can, some of you have grown up with parents who have actually been hugely controlling. And they've, at one level, they flatter you. You're amazing. You're everything to me. But woe, if you try and do something that they don't want, it switches in a heartbeat. That, that is a spirit of control at work, leading us, leading us to try and control one another. It can be very dramatic and obvious. It can be can be subtle. I remember being in a leaders meeting in, in England, very gifted leader. I remember thinking, man, I feel really fearful to disagree with you. Like, I'm quite a bold person. But I remember feeling, it was like a feeling, and this is the thing, when you're dealing with things of the spirit, it's often a sense more than a thought. It's not like I can work out that you are now operating in this unhealthy way. 
It's just you, once you've sensed something of that Jezebelic controlling thing, it's a sense. It's like it, you feel it, you smell it, you sense it. I remember once years ago, I had this letter from this lady who was a leader, and it was just horrific. It was like more than the sum of its parts. I got this letter, and thank God I was with the elders, and I said to them, whoa, guys, tell me, is she right? Am I as horrendous as she's saying? And they were saying, no, 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 this, this, this is, do you know what I'm saying? The letter was somehow piggybacked by a dark force that was gripping me with fear and intimidation. Just this woman had written to me. I was like, why am I so like, oh, some of you have got bosses like that. You've got bosses. They're not even Christians. And they totally operate like that. And they're just this little person. But somehow everyone's gripped by them. That's the same deal. It's the way Satan, in many ways, controls this world. And once you've sensed it, once you've tasted it, it's actually a gift. Because then you can sense it both in your own life or in the lives of others. And I want to say this, is that finally what we see here, and I'll just finish with this, is that there is a wonderful celebration that Jesus does penetrate this, this serious issue. But look with me in these final verses, verse 24. But I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Jesus says is, A, some of you have not given in. Hallelujah. You have stood strong in Christ. And what I'm saying is now, I want you to actually not just go, oh gosh, I felt a bit convicted. The feel of these final verses is I'm calling you to be a conqueror. With this whole thing, with any kind of sense of being either someone who has been controlled by others or you yourself have slipped into it. Either way, the feel of these final verses is bold. Wake up. This is not okay. Look at the, 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 uh, the threat that Jesus gives Jezebel herself and her children, i.e. those that have been following her. He's saying, wake up and become true to your identity. Do you notice what he says to them? He promises them authority. He says, you're going to rule with me one day in the new heavens and the new earth. He doesn't say it's wrong to want to have authority. He doesn't say the solution to being someone who in any way operates in this way is to become limp, some limp, floppy person. He actually says, no, no, I want you to have authority. Like he said to Adam and Eve, go and have dominion. He wants us to, to reign and rule with him. We're bringers of the kingdom. The language is that we are called to be those who reign and rule with him. The key if issue is how we get the authority, how we get the control. And here we see he's saying, I want to give it to you. If you grab it, if you try and control others, it's like Jesus when he was in the wilderness. The temptation was, grab it now through manipulation and control. And Jesus, I don't need to do that. My time will come and then it will be pure. And that's what he's saying to me. He's saying, guys, that deep part of you that wants to be like this, that wants to have a godly dominion and a godly authority, is not wrong. But if you have given into counterfeit 
ultimately satanic versions of it now that are so subtle and often are just hiding in our, in our minds and in our hearts. He says, that's the issue. It's how you get the authority, not if it's given to you by God himself. When God gives authority to his children, it feels so gloriously different. And then we don't do it for our own ends. We do it for the glory of God. We do it for the glory of God. We become those who start to reign and rule in this life. It says in Romans, we, we're called to be more than conquerors. Amen? Amen? Guys, this is the feel of this is that you must, must be ruthless with this, is what he's saying. He's saying you, there's no stronger words he can say in terms of a challenge, but also an encouragement. He's saying, I am challenging you with every word I can give you to rid yourself, to repent. If you feel like you are slipping into trying to control others and somehow leading them into just compromise, and it may not be a very obvious type of compromise, just being... Listen, for me, it can be, I just want that person to look, to look to me in such a deep way that it's almost replacing their relationship with God. For many leaders, that's what it's like. They so love me that really, in my heart, unconsciously, is I want them just to think of me as their God. Man, this pulpit thing leads to that so subtly, doesn't it? Without even realizing it. And no, no, no. He said, I want you ultimately. I want you to be absolutely in the grip of your God alone. He's saying here, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. This issue of wanting to be in control, which you will have inevitably either experienced against you, often by people who have no idea they're doing it, or you yourself have found yourself operating in this way, today, the Lord is saying, hey, listen, there is no shame. There is no shame in this house. Amen. Jesus has taken all our sin and shame away. You can instantly know forgiveness, instantly know actually freedom to know what it is to walk out of this and to walk into a place where you're saying every single day, I will not attempt to control a single person. I will enjoy the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is self-control. Hallelujah. But that's where it ends, brother. I'm dealing with this person. There's enough trouble for one day with this man let alone trying to get into everyone else's lives. Amen? So I don't want us navel-gazing. That's not the feel of this. It's stern, it's clear, it's authoritative, but it's like, turn around now and get onto the right track. You are called to be a conqueror. That's what he says. He doesn't say, if, you're, if you feel convicted today, you need to just quietly go and get counseling. He's like, this is a massive widespread issue. So don't feel like you're the only person here. Actually, no, no, we can together say, I own that. I have both been controlled by others, which offends God because I make them God. That's deeply offensive. When I care more what you think than what he thinks, that's a huge offense to God. So whether, if I think, oh, you know, poor me, I'm all scared of people. God's like, I'm not sympathetic to you, son. I'm the son of God with blazing eyes. What more can I say? Fear me. Don't care. Don't need people. Love them. But don't worship them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And love your neighbor as you would yourself. You see the difference in feel there? Know yourself. You're a bit of a mixed bag, Tom. So love people with some wisdom is what he's saying. Let's stand to our feet. Listen, if you feel like today, I, I do feel like I have 
either been at times just, I've, I just know that I've let people control me or I have been someone who even to a small degree have started to slip into controlling others. I, I, I want you today to do something which deliberately is letting go of a bit of control. That's the whole point, okay? And you are physical beings, remember? Don't think, oh, this is just my internal life now. That's the lie they were believing. You're physical beings as well. And God has given us legs and bodies so we can do things that help our inner spirits, our inner beings to walk in freedom. Hallelujah? Hallelujah? So I want, I want us today, if you feel like, yes, I do want to just take one more step today in breaking this, I want you just to quickly actually come to the front. Just come to the front with no shame or fear. Quickly to the front. Don't overthink it. I'm not saying everyone here is massively controlled at all. The whole point of my talk is that this is very widespread. And, and actually, I'm not surpri- I wouldn't be surprised if everybody came forward. Let me just put my cards on the table. Because it's such a common spirit in this world around us. And it's, it's so easy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Keep coming. Keep coming. We're family. You can be totally safe and vulnerable in this place. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's close our eyes. Physically close our eyes to lock into Jesus. Hallelujah. Right, now we want to agree. Now I want you to, pr- I want th- listen guys, the enemy hates to be exposed. Do you understand that? He hates it when we expose any of his major schemes. So I want you in these last five minutes, as I start to pray, I want everybody in this room to start to pray with me. Using your lips, not just in your heart. I want this room to be filled with prayers of the Holy Spirit. Prayers filled with the Holy Spirit as we start to just together repent and confess and turn away from a previous uh, mindset, an agreement that we often make in our hearts of, yeah, I'm going to either be controlled by those or I'm going to be doing the controlling. Right now, all across this room, can you just join me and just starting to pray out loud and starting to say, Holy Spirit, would you start to fill this room in these last few moments, all across from the front to the back, from the sides into the middle. We absolutely love you. We love you that tough words produce soft hearts. And today we just say, come, Holy Spirit, come. And I just pray, Lord, that you would grant us such a vivid, glorious invitation to fully repent. What a beautiful word. Thank you for the gift of repentance. And Lord, I just want to pray, even if there's more, more areas in our life where this has just been just whispering in our ears, break it, Lord. One of the truest signs, if this is an issue for you, is anxiety. When I am trying to control everyone, I am incredibly anxious. So even if I don't know I'm doing it, when that is dominating my heart, just higher levels of anxiety than kind of normal, I'm often like, what's going on? And control is often going on. So right now, Lord, we just lift our hands up to the King. We lift our hands up, Lord. Our days are in your hands. Hallelujah. And this day is the Lord's day. It is a gift. You've created the sun the moon. You've created this beautiful family before us, all the children and the youth who are gathered. We lift our hands to the King of Kings and we declare, you, O Lord, are in control. 
and we renounce agreements, any agreements that just say you can have control. Lord, for us parents, we renounce the lie that we can control our kids. Lord, we want to bless them. We want to pray for them. We want to do them good, but they're yours. They're yours. Lord, we just pray, Lord, if we felt an undue guilt with our, our parents, Lord, and they've just manipulated, we break that in the name of Jesus. I pray for any here who have actually got into sexual immorality and it's just been weakening that vertical relationship with you and there's just been these unhealthy alliances building up. Break it, Jesus. Break it, Jesus. Thank you. Just keep receiving from him. Keep receiving in faith, Spirit of God. We're very hungry for your power today. The power of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want you to use your own lips. You speak out all across this room to your great high priest who loves you.